Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading this morning is taken from Luke, chapter 18, reading from verses 9 to 14. And that can be found on page 1052, 1052 in the Church Bibles. Luke 18, reading from verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and to give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Claire. Good morning, everyone. My name is Pete. I'm one of those odd staff members that Rod referred to. Very good to have you with us this morning. Uh, Do keep your Bibles open at that reading from Luke 18. It's on page 1052 if you just close them. I think you'll find it a great help to have them open as we go through the next few moments. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that all of history is heading to that moment when your people bow before your throne in heaven. And I pray that you would be at work amongst us this morning by your spirit with your word in front of us, that you might work in us the right view of ourselves and of you, that we might be ready for that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The parable before us this morning is a famous one, rightly so. It's a wonderful story of hope, of mercy, of of roles being reversed. But I wonder, as Claire read the parable to us, how many of us just thought to ourselves, God, I thank you, I am not like that Pharisee. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, begins a chapter like this. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which Everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and then he continues, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. It's his way of beginning a chapter on pride, and he's on to something, isn't he? Pride has this ability to warp our perspective. It can blind us. We can see pride in other people when they brag about what they did over the weekend, when they always talk about themselves and never ask how we are doing, 
when they respond to criticism with, with, with defensiveness, when they put others down. Easy to spot pride then, much harder to spot pride when it's in my own heart. And so this parable today is a gracious gift from the Lord Jesus to us to help us to inspect our hearts with the clarifying lens of Scripture that we might see properly. For those of us who are new to Christian things, it's great to have you here this morning. I hope today gives you an insight into the kind of person God accepts. And it may be a surprise to you. For the rest of us, the danger is that familiarity with this parable will lead us to switch off. But I wonder if we can see how high the stakes are. Pride is not a small thing. The presence of pride in our hearts is not like the spare room in our house that we never got around to redecorating, and we will get to it someday, but for now it doesn't really matter if we don't get there. No, pride is much more like discovering the house has no foundations and could fall down any second. The stakes are very high when it comes to pride. In another famous passage in the Bible about pride, in James 4, we read this. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Not a bad summary of the parable before us this morning. In fact, those are my two points. If you're taking notes, the first is this. God opposes the proud. It's always helpful when we're told exactly what the point of a parable is. And Luke very kindly does that for us in our reading. Look at verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. It's a parable about pride. Two men go to the temple, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the camera starts by staying with the Pharisee. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, there's something good about this prayer. In my previous church, one Friday night, someone took a rock and threw it through the window of the church reception area, and they broke in and stole all kinds of stuff. And when the police came, they found a half-drunk can of beer on the desk in the office. And once we confirmed that the church receptionist preferred tea rather than beer, they took some fingerprints, they found a match, they arrested the man. And I can tell you how relieved we all felt. For those of us involved in the break-in, it was distressing to have that kind of impact on our church. If If we've ever been robbed, we know it's a horrible feeling. And so it's good that this Pharisee is not a robber. Most importantly, robbery is against God's commandment. Look at the Ten Commandments. And so it's also good that this Pharisee does not do evil, that he's faithful to his wife. And and tax collectors, we're going to meet a real-life tax collector when we get to Luke 19. And when Zacchaeus repents, he says, if I have cheated anybody, Out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. 
You see, tax collectors were known for being cheats. They would charge too much tax, they would skim off a profit, and they would take it home for themselves. In today's context, um, I've, I came across, according to Age UK, that there's been a recent spate in the number of people pretending to fundraise for the disaster taking place in Ukraine, pretending to act on behalf of genuine charities to help support people suffering there, but it's a con. And so they ask for people to donate and support, and they take the money for themselves. And it seems they're particularly targeting those vulnerable in our society. And it makes us angry when we discover people like that, fraudsters who are ripping off vulnerable people in the context of a disaster where many people are suffering. And that is something of how people would have felt about tax collectors in Jesus' day. And as the Pharisee continues his prayer, he moves on to the good things he does, not just the bad things he avoids. Verse 12, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. The Old Testament law required God's people to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement and to give a tenth back on some things they received. But on both counts, this Pharisee goes well beyond what was required. We cannot understand this parable unless we see just how impressive this Pharisee is. Thinking about our context today, he would be the kind of person who would always come to church on a Sunday. The kind of person who would carefully manage their diary to always be back in town to come to be with God's people when we meet. He, he would be the kind of person who would review his giving regularly and would give sacrificially and generously to support the work of the church. He had been careful not to sleep around before he got married, and he is faithful to his wife now. He fills out his tax returns honestly and accurately every year. He is a servant, always being involved in the church family, helping others. He's committed to his small group. He's doctrinally orthodox. He stands up for scripture even when it's hard. He brings friends along to church. He speaks openly about Jesus, and he even recycles. That is the kind of person this Pharisee is. And yet, we're told, verse 14, that it is the Pharisee who will go home unjustified before God. Why is that? Why would such an impressive person get the guilty verdict from God. It's because of his heart. Verse 9 is clear. This Pharisee is confident he can be accepted by God because of the things he does. But he's utterly mistaken. Verse 14 gives us the conclusion. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. God opposes the proud. If we rob a bank and get caught and go to prison, or if we have an affair that ruins our marriage, it's painfully clear to everyone else how we've broken God's law. But pride, 
much harder to see. And we're seeing here that it's dangerous, and perhaps even more dangerous than some sins, because it's less obvious. It's like a, a cancer of the heart that's hidden. And it is the people who are living lives that are most similar to God's commandments that appear to be those most likely to struggle with pride. Isn't that what this Pharisee is showing us? But even still, some here this morning might say to me, yes, Pete, but we're Christians. We know that it's all about God's grace and not about what we do to earn our place in his people. We would never pray like this. But this Pharisee should also have known that as well. In the Old Testament, Abraham, the great father of the people of Israel, he was a, a pagan worshipping idols in a distant land when God found him and graciously brought him into his people. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, hopeless and helpless when God rescued them and brought, him, brought them to himself. All the way through the Old Testament, it has only been on the basis of God's grace that anybody can be part of his people. And the Pharisee who knew the Old Testament scriptures should have known this. And yet here he is, praying a prayer full of self-confidence. Because the human heart is very capable of drifting from a place of grace into a place of pride. What drives this drift? Well, here in Luke 18, it's the comparison game. And we compare ourselves to other people all the time, don't we? How we dress, how we speak, where we live, the kind of car we drive, the school we went to, the ways that we serve at church, how much we do or don't say at small group, how well-behaved our children are. So many ways for us to compare and contrast. We used to live in Oxford. Our house was about a mile away from the church building along a very flat road, and I normally try to cycle back and forth as much as I could between our house and the church building. And compared to other people I knew in Oxford, I felt I cycled quite a bit. And then we moved to Sheffield. <laughs> and I found myself at, uh, speaking to a new Sheffield friend, and they said, oh, Pete, do you cycle? And I said, well, yes, actually, I do quite a bit. And they said to me, oh, Pete, great, this coming Saturday, a few of us are heading up into Peaks for a 50-mile ride. Do you want to come and join us? To which I remembered I wasn't a cyclist. <laughs> Isn't that how the comparison game works? Sometimes we look good compared to other people in the right context with the right comparisons. Other times, not so much. And if we can manage to make the right comparison about the right things with the right people, like this Pharisee, well, that's a great place to grow pride. If we want to feel better about our temper, it helps to find someone who has an even quicker temper than we do. If we want to feel better about the search history on our internet browser, it helps to find someone who struggles even more with lust. If we want to feel better about our prayerlessness, it helps to find someone who prays even less than us. And it goes on and on. And if we find ourselves putting others down, 
if we are constantly nipping and, and sniping with little comments. Why is that? Is it possible that we need the comparison to bolster how we feel about ourselves? What is striking about this Pharisee is that even though he prays initially to God, his prayer is really about himself, isn't it? All the things that he has done. Very little thought is given to God and to what God is like. And surely that is the key comparison lacking in his prayer. God opposes the proud. So how should we respond? Well, let's follow the camera as it pans around to the second man. And here's our second point. God shows favor to the humble. Let's pick it up. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Note the physical differences. The tax collector stays back, away from the center of the temple, away from the Holy of Holies where God dwelt behind the curtain. He cannot even bring himself to look up to heaven as he prays. And he beats his chest as a sign of anguish, visible to everyone to see as he prays. And his prayer is also very different. When he does pray, it's, well, when he talks about himself, it's only to confirm that he's a sinner. He makes no attempt to compare himself with other people. His focus is entirely on God. And he knows that before God, he has no chance There are no excuses, no caveats, no qualifiers, just a humble, honest acknowledgement that before a pure and holy God, he has fallen completely short. The word for mercy here is an unusual word. It's linked to the word propitiation. We don't often use the word propitiation today, not least because it's very hard to say. But it is vital that we understand what it means. To propitiate means to turn aside or to satisfy someone's anger. And so a valid paraphrase of the tax collector's prayer would be, God, please may your right anger for my sin be diverted somewhere else. I stress this point because the tax collector is not trying to downplay or rationalize or excuse his sin. This is what our culture does. No, he's facing up to it head on. That his sin provokes righteous anger in the eyes of a holy God. And his only plea is that God would somehow find a way to divert that anger somewhere else. And doesn't this take us right to the heart of the gospel? Even as this tax collector prays at the temple, the place of animal sacrifice for sin. So we know as readers that Jesus is heading on his way to Jerusalem to die as the perfect sacrifice for sin. When he died on the cross, he died an innocent man, but he died to take the sins of others. And as he died, he took God's righteous anger, his punishment for sin, onto himself. And so for those who cry out 
for mercy, Jesus dies in our place and God's anger is diverted from us onto Jesus that we may never face his judgment ourselves. And so it is because of the death of Jesus that he can say what he does in verse 14. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Our standing before God can never be secured through our own efforts, only through the death of Jesus. And the only way that we can enjoy the benefits of the death of Jesus for us personally is to do what the tax collector did, crying out for mercy. You see, God shows favor to the humble. Here is C.S. Lewis again. I wish I'd got a bit further with humility myself. If I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort of taking the fancy dress off, getting rid of the false self. To get even near it, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. We dread being exposed, don't we? I know I do in my own heart. I desperately want all of you to think much of me, to think that I don't need God's mercy. The comparison game is exhausting, isn't it? Always trying to keep up the appearance for others, knowing that inside it's all a sham, it's a, a fancy dress, as Lewis says. What a relief if we could take off the pretense and be honest with one another and with God that actually we are all sinners needing mercy. And so what this parable is showing us, that what feels like disaster is actually the only way to true peace. Owning our sin, being honest before God and others, that is where we find true security and true acceptance. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. I want to finish with three markers, I think three signs that would show if we really are believing this truth, things that we can grow in. One marker is an increase in the confession of our sin. Corporately, individually, in our times of prayer with the Lord on our own, making confession an urgent, central part of what we do. The second marker is a growing amazement that this is what God is like. God welcomes the lowly, the outcast, the no-hoper. God does not wait for us to tidy up our lives first before he'll then accept us. God's arms aren't crossed like this, waiting for us to sort out our lives. No, his arms are open, welcoming us as we are in our sin. Arms open with compassion and mercy. And so our amazement would grow 
that that is what he's like. And the third mark, I think there would be a growing gentleness and kindness towards each other. This parable gives us the negative example of how pride leads to a critical spirit that looks down on others, which eats away at our community. But surely the opposite is also true, that when humility is the increasing melody of our church family, as we increasingly know that we all need God's mercy, wouldn't it transform how we relate to each other? That there would be growing kindness and gentleness. That we would be quick, quick, quick to include rather than exclude. We would be quick to forgive rather than criticize. Quick to show compassion rather than judge. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, for this loving gift, a lens to view our hearts through. Father, please work in us a growing confidence in your mercy shown to, to us in the death of Christ. And please work in us a growing readiness to humble ourselves before you, confident in the mercy we have in him. And in his name we pray. Amen.